So good to be together and to worship God together as His people. I hope that you are feeling well this morning and we are ready to study uh, this wonderful passage of Scripture from Revelation chapter 12. If you turn your Bibles there, we'll be looking at that whole chapter in a lesson entitled Victorious Over Evil. Victorious Over Evil. This uh, contains the scene that Tom read for us a moment ago of the war in heaven between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels. It's been depicted and thought of in numerous ways. I want to share a, a painting from 1562 with you. This is a really strange painting by Dutch painter Peter Bruegel. And it's a different take on this than you might have seen before. Uh, in his depiction of the rebel angels in heaven, the rebellious angels don't look like angels at all. They look monstrous. They look like hybrid creatures. Some of them look like catfish. Some of them look like poultry. There are animals that look like just monsters or moths or sea creatures. Uh, they don't look like angels at all. And there's really no hand-to-hand -hand combat, combat, no war. Michael is depicted as a knight and, uh, in armor. And uh, the rest of the angels on, the, on God's side are dressed in white linen. And it's more of a, a hygiene operation. It's a, a cleansing of heaven. They're casting the vermin out. And you can't really see it in the, on the screen, I'm sure. But they're sweeping all of these monstrous beings out of heaven, and they're being sucked down a drain into hell. And this is the uh, imagery, as Peter Bruegel saw it, from Revelation chapter 12, which was read just a moment ago, that war in heaven. And it's not to be taken any more literally than we're to take the passage in Revelation, the source material from which it came. But there are three themes, at least, that come from this we're supposed to take away from it. Number one, evil is grotesque. And number two, the struggle between good and evil is really absurd. It's over before it really begins. Because evil cannot overpower good. And thirdly, the devil and his angels are pitiful. You look at this painting, you almost feel sorry for him. Almost, but not quite. Now we go over to Revelation 12, the uh, scripture from which this imagery comes. And a question that people ponder over and over again is, when does this occur? And most people think of this as like the Battle of Armageddon, the apocalypse. This is at the end of time. That's a common interpretation of it. But the chapter actually in context suggests a different time. Look at Revelation 12, verse 11. They have conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And so it's not Michael and his angels that defeat the dragon. The dragon is defeated by the blood of the Lamb. And throughout the New Testament, it is consistently established that the devil was defeated when Jesus died on the cross. I think this is a very important point. 
This is when the war occurred. And when the victory was accomplished, we're not still waiting on it. It happened when Jesus died on the cross. A few passages to consider. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in verse 27 of John 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then in verse 31, he says, Now the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, when was Jesus lifted up from the earth? At the time he cast the ruler of this world out. Obviously, on the cross. So in John chapter 12, he says, I will cast the ruler of this world out when I'm lifted up from the earth. Another passage to consider is Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, Paul is talking about the death of Christ on the cross. And in verse 15, he says, At this time he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And that's a language... Uh, that refers to the rebellious angels, the, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the rebellious angels, and He did so effectively. Another passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. I think that is, concludes beyond a shadow of a doubt when this war was fought and won. It was fought and won on the cross. And what we see in the book of Revelation is a picture, a dramatic picture but a picture of God's victory over evil, and it was established through the blood of the Lamb. I think we can look at this, even though it's in the book of Revelation, which is highly symbolic, and we can understand what's going on. And not only that, what I'd like to do this morning is look at the whole chapter and the story that unfolds there and ask, how does this apply to me personally? Too often we just get big, broad, general themes from Revelation if we get anything from it. And we fail to apply it to ourselves personally. And this morning I want you to see, this is a, a chapter of the Scripture that's often neglected, but has a very important message, not just for the church as a whole, but for you personally. How you as an individual can be victorious over evil. So let's look at it in the... The way I'm going to outline the lesson is I'm going to go through the whole chapter and tell the story, and then we're going to draw the practical applications out. So let's start with scene one. Scene one is in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. Let's read it together. John says, A great sign appeared in heaven. He's going to introduce us to this radiant woman. Let's read about her. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head... A crown of 12 stars. The number 12 is a very common number in the Bible. Uh, we have 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 
12 apostles in the New Testament. It's a, it's a number always referring to uh, God's people on earth. You read in Revelation 7 about the 144,000. What is that number? It's just a multiple of the number 12. 12 has to do with religion, God's people on earth, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And this woman has some connection to that. Now she was pregnant, verse 2, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. The red dragon is easy to identify because later on, in uh, verses 7 through 9, he's identified as Satan himself. So her enemy appears as a dragon. It's the devil. Verse 4 says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He is the enemy of this woman's child. She gives birth, verse 5, to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. One thing you need to understand in the book of Revelation is a lot of times we misunderstand it because we don't understand the Old Testament. Over in Psalm 2, verse 9, there's a messianic prophecy, a prophecy having to do with Christ. And it says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is almost verbatim. It is verbatim. Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. So we know this child, the woman gives birth to, has to be Jesus Christ. So that makes the woman Israel, right? Because Israel, 12, 12 tribes, gave birth to Jesus in his incarnation when he was born. He was a Jew, born of Israel. So he's born, and the dragon is not able to consume him as he wishes. Verse, verse 5 says that her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Where's Jesus sitting today? On the throne with God. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. You divide that down, that's three and a half years. You see this time period a lot in the Old Testament prophets, in the book of Revelation. It's a time, times, and half a time, or it's 1,260 days, or it's that number in months, or it's three and a half years. You see that figure a lot in apocalyptic literature and scripture. And what it's doing is it's dividing the number seven in half. Half of seven, the, the number of divine perfection, is three and a half. And the whole meaning here is of incompleteness and uncertainty. And it's used to symbolize a time where there's hardship and suffering, but always when it's used symbolically in books like Daniel or Revelation, there's always a glimmer of hope as well. So keep that in mind. This woman flees into the wilderness, and she has to suffer in the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time, for three and a half years, for an uncertain period of time, full of hardship and suffering, but with a glimmer of hope. That's scene one. Now, what happens in scene two? There was a war. 
A war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the devil, the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. John sees war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight the dragon and his angels. But the dragon is defeated almost before the war begins. It says he fought back, but it's useless. He's thrown down to earth. Scene 3. This is verses 10 through 12. This is the much-neglected interpretive section of this chapter. So pay very close attention because if you're wondering what all these things mean for you and me, in these verses, this is where you're going to get the information. I heard a loud voice, John says, in heaven, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. So this voice from heaven, this authoritative voice, gives four assurances. Salvation from the forces of evil. Power, bring victory to the armies of the Lord. The kingdom of our God, establishing God's rule. And the authority of Jesus Christ. Then the voice goes on to explain why the brothers, that is, Christian people, brothers and sisters in Christ, why they were able to throw down the dragon and defeat the powers of Satan. And uh, verse 11 says, there are three reasons why they were able to to do that. First of all, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So it's not really Michael and his power, but Michael and we together defeated him by the blood of the Lamb, the redemptive power of Jesus' death on the cross. Secondly, he says, and by the word of their testimony. So salvation passed from those who were initially rescued to others by the word of the testimony of the first brothers. And then he goes on to say, finally they were rewarded, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And that closes scene three. We'll come back to some of those elements as we make practical application. Because like I said, this is the interpretive section where we learn what this means for our lives. But there's a final scene, scene four, that closes out the chapter beginning in verse 13. War has already been won, but the salvation is incomplete. So it says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. There's that number again, 1,260 days, three and a half years, however you want to put it. But an uncertain period of time full of suffering and hardship with a glimmer of hope. And so she is being persecuted, but there's hope. And the serpent, this is the devil, formerly the dragon, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. What comes out of the devil's mouth? Lies. Deceit. Jesus said he's the father of lies. John 8, 44. He's been telling lies on earth since Genesis chapter 3. You shall, sure, you shall not surely die. This is his main mode of operations. 
We're still struggling with the devil's influence in this world. He's the ruler of the earth. Why? Because he tells lies. And that's how he exerts his authority on earth. That's why he's the God of this world. His lies are still deceiving us. And so he's trying to get the woman with his lies. But, remember the glimmer of hope? Verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman... And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The woman's identity seems to shift a little bit here. Because this woman has not just one child, but many And her offspring hold to the testimony of Jesus. That has to be you and me. These are Christians. Not only that, but she's being persecuted in the age in which this book, the book of Revelation is written, which doesn't apply to the physical nation of Israel. And what you just need to understand here is, from the biblical writer's point of view, there is a a very close kinship between the Israel of the Old Testament, which was the nation of Israel, and the Israel of the New Testament, which is the church, we're all the same people. We go to the same heaven. We serve the same God. We lived under two different covenants. But the church, Galatians 6.16, is the Israel of God. And the Israel of God here, represented by this woman, is still suffering persecution. And as a whole, you see her rescued... She's given eagle's wings and she escapes, but some of her offspring, individual Christians in isolated places here and there, are suffering severe persecution. And here's where the text comes to your life and mine. It's comforting to think of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil and his forces will never be able to destroy the Lord's church. The Lord's church as a whole, in general, that great kingdom will always survive. It's going to outlast this earth. It will be present in heaven with God, a great multitude no one can count. And that's all well and good, and that brings us some encouragement. But sometimes... We want to ask, but what about me? Yes, the church as a whole will be fine, but will I be lost in the shuffle? Will I be persecuted unto death? What will become of me? This text gives hope not just to the church as a whole, but to individual Christians, to you and to me. And this is where it becomes very practical. And so I want to share with you in our time that remains five means of deliverance mentioned in the text for you and for me that tell us we can have victory in our personal, individual lives. Number one, we are justified by the blood of the Lamb. Remember Revelation 12, verse 11? It's not the power of Michael, not the power of the angels that defeat the dragon in heaven but it's the blood of the Lamb. We are saved by 
the blood of the Lamb. We are justified by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus' death on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, justified as a gift through the cross, verse 26, so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Justified means God declares us righteous on behalf of the, the death of His Son, Jesus, on the cross. For, his, for our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So we're saved through the blood of the Lamb. This wonderful truth is depicted in the book of Revelation by this image of the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us and actually makes our, our clothing as white as snow. For example, in Revelation 3, to the church at Sardis, Christ writes of saints who will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he promises that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And then later in chapter 7, verse 14, you see those redeemed individuals identified as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are justified by the blood of the Lamb. We have no hope without Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we can be delivered from the power of death, wielded by Satan against us, because Jesus died for us so that we might live. Number two, we believe by the word of the testimony of our brethren who've gone before us. It wasn't just the blood of the Lamb that is mentioned as the power of conquest here, but in verse 11 also the testimony of their word. And what does he mean here? Testimony has to do with evangelism. This is the word of God that was brought from one generation to the other. Christians who are disciple-making following the Great Commission. Before Jesus left the earth, he told the initial disciples that he had made, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, name, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Carry this word forward. Bear the testimony of the Lord so that others can be saved after you. We did not witness the death of Jesus on the cross with our own eyes. We did not touch him with our hands. We didn't have the opportunity of Thomas, who was given the opportunity to feel the scars on Jesus' body after he was raised from the dead. But we have their word. We have the testimony of those people. And it's that testimony that saves us in the sense that we learn the good news that they had. James says in James 1.21, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. There is a sense in which the word of God saves our soul. No, Jesus' blood paid the price. And so it's the death of Jesus that saves us. But without word of that, without testimony, how would we know? And so the gospel has to be brought forward. And that's our work now. 
It's now in our hands. If we fail to carry it to the world, the world will never know God's power over evil. Third point, Satan cannot win, not even by killing those who oppose him. I want to dwell on this idea of testimony a little bit more that we see twice in this chapter, once in verse 11 and the second time in verse 17. The word translated testimony is based on a root from which we get our word martyr. A martyr is somebody who dies, but not just that. A martyr is someone who dies because he cannot be deflected from his witness by death. No threat, not even the threat of death, will keep him from sharing the testimony of Jesus Christ. So many of those who bore the testimony, it's understood here, died for preaching the gospel. John's vision is a compelling reminder to 21st century Americans that the Christians that went before us in other places, and even today in other places, are undergoing hardship and trials, the likes of which we have never known. And we complain about losing friends for the gospel or job opportunities or being mocked or ridiculed. We grow fearful and weary, and we don't want people to know we're Christians six days out of the week. We hide in our church buildings. And the people that went before us were martyrs. And they understood this point that we need to bring home to our own minds that Satan can't win. He can't even win by killing us because we live beyond the grave. Number four, we persevere with the help of the providence of God. Now, there's a very interesting detail in this chapter in verse 16. In the fourth scene, where the earth comes to the aid of the woman who's running from the flood coming out of the dragon's mouth. And the earth opens up and devours this flood that's coming out of the, the serpent's mouth, the flood of lies. And it's difficult to really know what's going on here. But one possibility is the earth stands for the natural order and that God has so arranged this world so that His creation is protective of His people. Maybe it's easier to think of it this way. It could be talking about the providence of God. Not His miraculous action where He breaks the rules of the natural order and acts supernaturally, but providence is God's activity that operates within the natural order, the laws that he put in place when he created the world. Brethren, I believe that God answers prayer. I believe he knows our trials and hardships. I believe that he is able to come to our aid and do what is best for us. I think there is reason to cry out to him when we need help. I believe that. And it's not always easy to see what he's up to. And many times we have to have a, a many years perspective to look back and understand and see. And even then, there's some uncertainty involved. You know, Mordecai was talking to Esther about their situation. There's not a, a miracle involved in the book of Esther, but somehow, inexplicably, this young Jewish girl 
becomes queen in Persia. And Mordecai says in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, Who knows whether you've come to the throne for such a time as this? Who knows? You know, God may be acting on our behalf. He does this. And we see by the end of the story that he certainly did. In the book of Philemon, the slave Onesimus, he runs away from his master Philemon, who happens to be a friend of Paul's. Onesimus runs to Rome. He finds Paul. Paul writes to Philemon and he says, Perhaps this is why he came to me, so that you could receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother beloved in the Lord. Philemon 15. That's God's providence at work. It wasn't a miracle that brought Onesimus to Paul. Nothing supernatural occurred. He learned the gospel and obeyed it. Paul wrote to Philemon saying, you shouldn't treat people as slaves. This is not a slave that you own. This is your brother in Christ. And perhaps that's the reason all this happened. Maybe God's hand was in the whole thing. I believe that God answers prayer and He acts on our behalf. Last point. We conquer evil by keeping the commandments of God. Verse 17 has the dragon furious with the woman. He goes off to make war with her offspring. And they are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Friends, that's our identity. We are the people who are distinguished by keeping the commandments of God and holding on to the testimony of Jesus no matter what, no matter how hard it is, that's who a Christian is. And that's how we conquer evil. Grace is what drives this. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright, self-controlled, godly lives in the present age. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Jesus died to redeem for Himself a people zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. We must hold to the testimony. New converts are often very surprised by their experience as new Christians. I think a lot of people come to, come to Christ and they obey the gospel and they're baptized and they think, all my problems are over. Life is going to be smooth sailing from here on out. And they realize that when they start walking with Christ, it gets harder in a lot of ways. And they ask, why, why is it harder for me? Why am I facing hardship and trials? Why are people mocking me? Why are decisions so difficult? I thought this was going to, I thought being a Christian was going to solve all my problems. But in Revelation 12, it shows that when you start obeying God, the devil is going to come after you. He's going to make war with you. And what you need to realize and where this lesson ends is that the war has already been fought and won. It's not a matter of trying to fight and win. It's just a matter of getting on the right side. Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? You're looking in Revelation 12 at a war that's been fought and won for you. 
And it wasn't won by Michael. He's like us, a soldier on the battlefields, empowered by the blood of the Lamb. Have your robes been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you obeyed the testimony about Jesus? Have you come to full obedience to Jesus Christ? Have you believed in Him, repented of your sins? Have you confessed His name as the Son of God? Have you been baptized in water for the remission of your sins? Are you a Christian walking faithfully even unto death, knowing that Satan can't harm you even when he kills you? Do you know and do you live for a life after this one? And would you like some help with that? If we can help you in any way, please come right now as we stand together and as we sing.